And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, why 2024 will be a crucial year for the government's cybersecurity workforce. Plus, from a recent practitioner, what's ahead for federal acquisition in 2024? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, we begin with acquisition. The Office of Federal Procurement Policy turns 50 years old this year. While the federal acquisition community has come a long way since 74, the next few years, let alone the next 50, will be all about the acquisition workforce. Christine Harada is the senior advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. She tells executive editor Jason Miller about the Biden administration's acquisition workforce priorities for this year and beyond. Number one, ensuring that we've got the appropriate people and that we're equipping them and supporting them and ensuring that we're developing them appropriately, that we're also further strengthening and and diversifying the supplier base, because if you don't have good market participants, like we're just not going to get the good kind of services that we as a federal agencies and our government enterprises need in order to be able to provide good solutions to the taxpayers, well, citizens who are on the receiving end. And again, last but not least, What's all underlying all of that is the data. And so I think a lot of the work that we're, the groundwork that we're going to be laying this year around ensuring that much more centralized data management strategies and sharing that is something that we are looking to focus on. We're working to build our best inspired, engaged acquisition workforce. And that of course requires an environment that attracts new talent and offers modern training and development opportunities where the acquisition workforce members actually build communities both inside and across federal agencies through networking and other learning opportunities. And the new certification process, the FACC or the Federal Acquisition Certification and Contracting Guidance Christine's personal view is truly transformative because it establishes a common set of technical and professional competencies for both DOD and civilian agencies. And we're finally going to have parity with the DOD contracting professional certification, and that'll help facilitate mobility between DOD, civilian agencies, and industries. So truly very excited about that. Let's talk a little bit about that FACSI modernization effort because this is something that you know really OFPP kicked off back in January. Now, like anything else, it takes a while to kind of really ramp up. What are some of those things you're seeing from it? What's the impact, even in the short time, that you're seeing it having on the acquisition community? The implementation is going well, firstly. So the civilian agency contracting professionals and their leadership have been very supportive and very enthusiastic about this new certification. Everyone who's had the legacy contracting certification was automatically given the new certification so that the new classes and exam targets folks that are newer to the government or new to the contracting career field. And of course, once folks have the certification, they can get training at the time of need. So very much, much more just-in-time training kind of a model. They're able to chart their own career path all in conjunction, of course, with the supervisors. And our folks can already also take many of the DOD credentials as well. And so the senior procurement execs are super excited that we'll soon have that parity and we're tracking the progress of the new certification through metrics on the number of training classes that are taken, how many exams have been taken, what's the pass rate of the exam, et cetera. And we're constantly communicating with our acquisition workforce community at all levels to ensure that we're understanding the impact that it is, the desired impact is actually being felt amongst the workforce and ensuring that it meets the needs of all of the agencies. 
Can you go through some of those statistics or the measurements in terms of people taking them, pass rate, anything that stands out to you as to kind of show the impact? Because, again, I think a lot of this is it's great that you have it, but are people, you know, you can lead them to water, but are you making them drink, so to speak? Yes, absolutely. So the numbers are still very preliminary. You know, we've got well over, I think the number is over 700 people that have uh, engaged in a lot of these trainings thus far. I don't know about the pass rates. I'd have to actually look that up. But that is, we're certainly seeing that in the numbers and they're ticking up in the right direction. One thing that came through just doing some research is the number of acquisition workers across the government is probably at the highest it's been in, in more than a decade. Do you think that because we've seen more people come in, and, and I know there's a lot of concern about the age, right? Jeff Kosas over at GSA uh, told me, you know, they have four times as many people over 60 than under 30 in, in the Federal Acquisition Service, and that's that's a big concern for them. Do you get a sense that this modernization effort and, and the is really driving kind of the type of change in, in the acquisition workforce that more people want to be a part of it, want to stay longer because they realize the good work they're doing? And, and this FACC is one example of of how you all are changing to meet them where they are? Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, I that was an issue, certainly the dumbbell, if you will, of the distribution of the acquisition workforce, absolutely an issue. Uh, when I was in the Obama administration working at GSA and also still continues to be somewhat of an issue, although I don't think it's as dire as it was eight years ago. I'm also really excited by the advances that are being made to create a much more innovation-friendly acquisition environment. Again, back to the, you know, the technology evolution and the way the degree to which that is now fundamentally really powering a lot of the way that we're delivering services to our citizens. You know, for example, when I was here during the Obama administration during the healthcare.gov crisis, I remember hearing so many complaints about how flexible the acquisition process is. And, you know, as you know, as well as anybody else, there's actually a lot of flexibility but there weren't as many efforts to encourage or capture that kind of innovative thinking. And so thankfully, that's changing with a number of innovation labs and safe spaces, a robust knowledge management portal with the periodic table of acquisition innovations. And I do think that demographically speaking, the you know the more junior or the newer contracting folks who tend to be a little bit more technology savvy are much more embracing of these types of, of efforts. And I can't overstate the potential here. If you look at the periodic table of acquisition innovation or the PTAI, you'll see all sorts of examples of how our buyers are reducing, you know, bid and proposal costs. They're shortening time from proposal submission to award and efforts to promote that innovative mindset that values creative thinking, outcomes and risk management over just a rigid compliance kind of framework is really contributing to that greater sense of empowerment to problem solve uh, within the acquisition workforce. Just kind of occurred to me as as, as I'm thinking about all, all the work you have and laying out the acquisition of the future. OFPP and, and the FAR Council have been incredibly busy publishing some new rules, proposed rules lately. From your perspective, what is really standing out to you among all this action and, and effort that's going on from the FAR Council and how that's driving changes in the acquisition community? So there's a couple of areas where I think you know we're really trying to push forward on. And firstly, mission first, people always. The FAR Council staff are amazing. And I'm very grateful that we've got a stellar workforce that's supporting a lot of the rulemaking efforts. We published three cybersecurity-related FAR rules. There were two proposed rules uh, required by an executive order for improving the nation's cybersecurity and an interim rule to facilitate implementation of the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Security Act of 2018 uh, to ensure that we're supporting agency supply chain risk information sharing. 
if those changes are required or necessary to ensure that the proper frameworks are in place to ensure that we're supporting that kind of information sharing, both, you know, across across federal agencies as well as with our industrial data, industrial base, um, but also effectively implementing any orders, exclusion or removal orders, you know, and ensuring that there's an actual process to be able to do that as well. The second big area, you know, in alignment with the Biden-Harris administration's priorities is around sustainability and climate, addressing the climate crisis that we've got. You know, as you may have heard, in August, we announced the latest step to leverage the federal government's procurement power to create jobs, advance American innovation, and building sustainable federal supply chains through the Sustainable Products and Services Procurement Rule. That will help achieve the President's goal of net zero emissions from federal procurement by 2050. And we've also closed a public comment period for uh, another sustainable procurement rule. And of course, we have the disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions and climate-related financial risk rule, uh, where the largest suppliers will be required to publicly disclose their GHG emissions. And I think that you know, these are the very much the areas where I see us within the OFPP and the acquisition community writ large playing a very close partnership role with our agency frontline mission counterparts to be able to ensure that we're delivering on these priorities and ensuring that we're delivering value for the American people. Christine Harada, senior advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, from a recent practitioner, more of what's ahead for federal acquisition and that workforce in 2024. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Acquisition is an eternal function to keep the government running. It's also constantly changing. My next guest knows the ins and outs, having just left the General Services Administration as commissioner of its Federal Acquisition Service. For what buyers and sellers can expect in the year ahead, Sonny Hashmi joins me now. Sonny, good to have you with us. Tom, it's great to see you. And I guess it's a little early to talk about your plans, but you're not retiring into the sunset, are you? No, I I am not. I'm actually very excited uh, that I will continue to serve the federal government, uh, but from the private sector. Uh, I'm uh, looking forward to my new role, which I'll be sharing more news on in the next few days. But also, it's going to be an opportunity for me to continue to work with the government agencies to help with their digital modernization. So I'm very excited about the next chapter, and I'm also very proud of the work we've done over the last three years at uh, the Federal Acquisition Service. Yeah, GSA is certainly not the GSA of our fathers and grandfathers in terms of the contracting opportunities it offers. And maybe you're biased, but review what you think are some of the strengths that it brings towards headed into 2024. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. So first of all, I do want to take this moment to recognize the incredible work that the the whole team at the Federal Acquisition Service does day in and day out. We are about 4,500 strong, uh, globally located, and every one of the leaders that I've worked with and have uh, admired and partnered with are just incredible leaders. They are doing incredible work every day. And all the great uh, successes that we've had over the last few years uh, is 100% attributable to the work that they've done. Obviously, I can't speak to the plans, but forward. Uh, I don't want to speak for the agency now that I've departed my role. However, I can say that there's incredible plans uh, underway uh, to continue to deliver more value to our citizens, to our customers, to create a much more equitable, inviting, successful marketplace for suppliers 
and to continue to make it easy for uh, people to do business with the government. We've made significant strides over the last year. I think you recently saw an article that we crossed a $100 billion a year market uh, uh, share threshold, which was somewhat uh, unheard of just even a few years ago. But it's all due to, and, and, and when, I, when I talk about that number, it really translates into the value that we add for customers. It's a, it's a testament to the products and services we build and uh, the service we provide. Um, what I will say is that you're right. Uh, acquisition is not a, you know, I think some people when they think about acquisition, they think about this paper-based process and bureaucrats sitting and signing documents and pushing paper. It can't be further from the truth. Acquisition is the primary way where the government gets access to the products and services that it needs to deliver on the mission. And it's data-driven process. Um, 100% of acquisition, the heart of the uh, heart of the uh, smart modern acquisition is data. And uh, we've done significant work over the last few years to get our data uh, position strong. Ultimately, if the government has insights into what is being bought, where it's coming from, who's producing it, what the carbon impact is, what the competitive pricings are, if you have this metadata and your access uh, to it, you can make much smarter and sound decisions around how you go to the market, how you position yourself, how you acquire the services sure. and products you need. And so that's going to be the name of the game. In fact, the new OMB memo, recent OMB memo, I should say, the Better Contracting Initiative, really underlines that point in a very succinct way. Well, let me ask you this. The GSA, of course, has some very large and successful government-wide acquisition contracting vehicles. So do several other agencies. Are there too many, do you think? Yeah, so that's a great question, Tom. Uh, we ask that question of ourselves almost every day. Ultimately, it doesn't really benefit anyone if we have a lot of duplicative you know, contract vehicles. In fact, it adds burden to the marketplace, to vendors and suppliers, and it uh, adds so much more complexity to acquisition officials when they're thinking about where to uh, go and get their services from. However, there's a certain amount of competition that is good, that, that does uh, allow agencies to continue to focus on innovation, continue to focus on delivering the right uh, product service mix. So it's a question that I would defer to OMB. Ultimately, OFBP decides which contract vehicles are authorized for government-wide use and which ones are not. As you know, certain agencies have the ability to create uh, and manage government-wide contract vehicles. I do think that in the case of, uh, for example, IT services, you know, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to have a deep look around uh, what is what is the right mix and what are the differentiations between these contract vehicles? Because historically, there's been, you know, a valuable uh, competition in the space of, for example, products where you can create competition through highly specialized pools of like products and categories. But uh, I do think that each one of these contract vehicles is becoming more and more expanded and they're starting to overlap a lot. Uh, and so ultimately you see the same suppliers show up in multiple contract vehicles. And I'm not sure what the taxpayer value is of uh, having multiple ways to access the same product or service. So while I can't speak to the specifics and of course ultimately uh, relies on OFPP to continue to look into this area, but I do think a, a new new assessment is uh, probably timely now. And just a real quick question, when GSA is operating its GWACs, do you, do they talk to NIH and to the soup people at NASA? And do you ever compare notes? Because, I mean, it is one government. Absolutely. We do all the time. Uh, in fact, as you know, Laura Stanton, who runs the GSA FAS's ITC organization, is the government-wide category management a manager for uh, technology products and services. And Laura does an amazing job to develop that coalition and continuously works very closely with NITAC or um, NIH, with NASA, with even uh, DOD and DLA 
to make sure that we are at least aligned in how we're going to market. The world of acquisition and especially the world of the marketplace we're living within is changing very fast. New products and capabilities are coming to market like AI and machine learning. And we also have new risks that are emerging. So supply chain risk management and illumination becomes a very important discipline. We also have global events that are causing disruptions to the supply chain. So preparing for things like global pandemics and natural disasters and making sure that we have resiliency in the supply chain becomes important. So all these things cannot be done agency by agency. We have to share this data with each other. At GSA, we have uh, built a very sophisticated supply chain risk management program, as an example, where we see insights deep into the supply chain on risks that exist at the product level or even at the company level. And we proactively share that information with interagency groups, to DOD, with DHS, with DOJ, and of course, NASA and NIH, so that they can they can cleanse their supply chain and identify those risks in their uh, marketplaces as well. Ultimately, we want to make sure that, uh, you know, of course, each agency has different, you know, slightly different but adjacent uh, responsibilities. To me, it's important to kind of think about the user's perspective, a user in this case being a buying agency or a supplier. And if we are creating duplication that adds burden to those users, then I think it's time to uh, reevaluate. Uh, but yeah, communication certainly happens, collaboration happens. There's a lot of good uh, alignment. Now, in fact, NASA, in many cases, uses a lot of the work that we do on the schedules program to build upon when they issue contracts under soup. So I'm not too worried about the lack of collaboration, but I am worried about, or I continue to be, continue to question what is the right mix. Sure. I would say, too, of, of what is the right balance in this environment. We're speaking with Sonny Hashmi. He recently left government as commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. Another question about the supply base. What's your sense of the strength of the industrial base that serves the government? Because, you know, in the case of defense, they've got some real issues that people don't want to be in that market. People are leaving that market. And it's a crucial time for defense. What about the civilian side of government? There's two or three meta challenges that we're seeing. These trends have been kind of underway for the last 10 years or more at this point. One of the troubling trends that we noticed uh, and we are all tracking is that there is a gradual reduction in the number of small businesses in the supplier base uh, for the for the government at large. So we've seen this atrophying effect over and over again over the last 10 years. And, and, and there's many factors that could be attributed to why that is happening. But the focus, of course, over the last three years, as well as as long as I've been there, has been to continue to reverse that trend. And I'm actually very proud to share that just this last year, about 47% of the dollars that were spent via FAS vehicles went to small businesses, which is an unprecedented number. So I'm very proud of the work that we've done. Similarly, new vehicles like 8A Stars 3, for example, about 50% of the vendors that got on board to 8A Stars 3 were first-timers to the federal marketplace, which is a great uh, number. So we're proud of the work that we've done. However, there's a meta trend going on. And uh, what I would say is that it's a combination of a lot of M&A activity that's happened over the last few years in the marketplace that have, um, you know, accelerated the graduation of certain small companies into large companies. Secondly, the requirement to be part of the federal marketplace continues to also grow higher. Part of that is based on the cybersecurity environment that we're living in. So a company that historically didn't have to comply with certain mandates like the 800-171 compliance or uh, DFAR compliance and things like that now have a very significant 
barrier to entry. And when you start thinking about additional requirements like FedRAMP and CMMC, at some point, companies start to question whether the market access is worthwhile. Uh, is there enough business on the other side for the investment that needs to be made? Yeah, that's something so, I wanted to ask you about, too, the constant layering on of requirements for federal contractors, whether it's in so-called diversity and equity or carbon or, as you mentioned, cybersecurity getting more stringent, labor practices. It comes from a couple of different agencies that oversee this. Is it just getting to be to the point where people say, who needs this? I, I, I certainly think that that is a real risk. And in fact, it's not the first time we're looking at it. We've been, we've been thinking internally and talking about it for many years now. All these um, additional requirements come from a good place, right? Uh, the, the government wants to drive the right kind of behaviors through federal acquisition policy. And those behaviors are driven by different quarters. However, they're all intended before, for the right reasons. We obviously want to serve the environment and save, uh, you know, uh, address uh, climate change. We want to make sure the small businesses have a fair shot. We want to create jobs. We want to support labor agreements that support uh, labor unions. All those things are intended to create more jobs in communities where they're needed. However, when you layer all of them together, the overall cumulative effect uh, can be fairly burdensome. Now, we go through the federal rulemaking process that does allow for calculation of additional burden that gets added whenever we pass policy. And so we do take that into account very, very closely. However, um, I do think that that still also happens in a case-by-case basis. So you may have one rule that goes through and the burden, additional burden is determined to be manageable. But then an additional, the next rule comes in and the next rule comes in. And I don't think we've done a full scope of what the total cumulative effect is. So I do think that especially for small businesses, it can uh, it can pose a fairly big challenge. Uh, as an example, uh, you know, there's been conversations around collecting scope two and scope three emissions data from different companies depending on their size. Now that's not an easy exercise to go through. If you're a company that's, that's even if you're a large company, Going through scope three emissions uh, auditing and uh, calculation is a fairly lengthy process and a fairly burdensome process. So uh, I do think that while the intentions are good, the government needs to constantly think about lowering that burden because it's working against the goal that we have of diversifying our marketplace. And ultimately, if we don't have diversity in that marketplace, we don't have enough competition, and then it leads to the counterintuitive uh, outcomes of having fewer players lower competition, higher prices, fewer options. So this is a moment where I think it's going to be the challenge of the next decade is how do you actually balance out the need for diversification of the marketplace against the need for driving social policy agenda items through acquisition? We are speaking with Sonny Hashmi. He recently left government as commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. The contracting and acquisition workforce itself, the 1102s in particular, but the whole panoply of people that actually get involved in getting things into the government. What kind of training will they need? What are the skills needed in this year and beyond you feel will need some development or education and training? Yeah, and that's another uh, very good point, right? Because on the one hand, the sophistication and the skills that uh, that workforce needs to have to balance out these sophisticated uh, decision points is increasing constantly. You know, 1102 that has to make a decision around following, uh, you know, Made in America regulations or evaluating carbon uh, impact of a particular procurement decision. Uh, You know, these are highly specialized uh, knowledge areas that require constant training and upscaling. At the same time, we are seeing an atrophying of 1102s in in the workforce. It's getting harder and harder to recruit 1102s. There are fewer and fewer of them in the marketplace. 
and the need has been higher than ever before. Now, at GSA, we uh, took a very bold step to completely rethink how we recruit and train and um, retain 1102s moving um, forward. And I'm very excited about some of the work that's going to be coming in FY24, which basically lowers the barrier for entry for people to come become part of the 1102 workforce, but then we take on the responsibility over a two-year period to give them the training that's needed, but also give them on-the-job, uh, hands-on experience, and then create basically a career path for them all the way through their career. So that really looks you look at you look at the longitudinal investment in an individual's career and build them into this. And in fact, instead of giving them all the training up front, you know, basically have a basic level of certification, but then have highly specialized kind of modules that they can invest in. So if you want to grow into cloud, you can be specialized in cloud. If you want to grow into sustainability, you can have specialization in sustainability. However, that is just one part of the problem. The other side is that the data that we are now seeing and the volume of that data, no human can process all of that data. We are seeing, for example, at GSA, contract modifications that may have 10 or 20,000 line items. No human is going to go through 10 or 20,000 line items to make sure that each one of those line items is compliant, is secure, it meets all the checks and balances. In fact, for every one of those product changes, we go through about 42 different checks from cybersecurity, supply chain, sustainability, all these kind of different angles. And so we have been relying heavily, more and more heavily on automation and technology to solve that problem, including the application of artificial intelligence. Through a lot of analysis, through a lot of collection and management of data and getting it in the hands of the people, the vision that we have been trying to achieve, and largely we are there, is that the acquisition official actually gets a report from the computer saying, of these 20,000 line items, these four require further analysis because they potentially have some risk, they potentially don't have the right uh, you know, certifications, et cetera. And so that person can apply their knowledge and their experience on a subset of problem areas that actually require human intervention. And so that is gonna be the new challenge, that is gonna be the new opportunity. That's why I keep going back to, this is a data problem. If you can manage, collect, align, harmonize, and use that data, then you can apply machine learning and machine expertise to it in combination of human expertise to really drive the right outcomes. And you have to have, I guess, a risk management approach even to that because, God forbid, you miss something and you end up giving Absolutely. a contract to someone who didn't comply with the latest subparagraph of some regulation. It's not the end of the world. Just say, hey, get compliant. Yeah. How do we find it? How do we continuously monitor for it? How do we have a path to goodness? Because uh, many companies don't uh, uh, not comply malicious reasons. They, you know, there are, there's a lot of complexity, and sometimes, uh, like you said, mistakes get made. So you need to have a path for a company to correct that uh, issue and uh, and get back into good standings. And then, of course, there are going to be instances of fraud or areas where we need to take uh, adverse action and how do we get ahead of that. Certainly, that's that's going to be the goal. And like I said, we have about, like in FAS, we manage about 74 million products in our marketplace. So if you can imagine 74 million products, each with its metadata around where it was manufactured, what the carbon impact is, is it sold, who sells it, are they authorized to sell it, where it gets from, where it gets stored, does it connect to the network? Like all these different metadata elements for each one of these elements, products need to be managed because all those data points then help decide whether this product is safe for a particular application or not. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a daunting challenge, and uh, so I don't I don't minimize the uh, the complexity of it. Uh, I wrote an article in uh, the NCMA magazine a few couple of years ago where I called it the challenge of the decade, and it truly is. And how do we manage our supply chain in light with all of these kind of 
priorities that we're trying to apply into our acquisition landscape and uh, ultimately becomes a massive data automation and intelligence challenge. Sonny Hashmi recently left government as commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the GSA. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thank you so much. Always a pleasure and I look forward to the next time. All right. And we'll look forward to seeing where you have landed. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. From the numbers, the cybersecurity workforce appears to be in a perpetual crisis. For years, the number of qualified cybersecurity personnel available has lagged behind the government's open positions, and that gap is growing. The White House, federal agencies, and other organizations have committed to getting after the shortfalls. That makes 2024 a crucial year. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with more. And Justin, the workforce challenge, the cyber workforce challenge is something not new for this time. What is the Biden administration planning to do in the coming year to take care of it or to get after it? Over the summer, the White House released this landmark cyber workforce and education strategy that really lays out some big goals for increasing cyber skills across the nation, for increasing the number of people who are, are, are available for cybersecurity positions, and then for strengthening the federal cyber workforce specifically. And one of the big things the Biden administration wants to do is make the government a leader in adopting skills-based hiring. And that kind of shifts away from using obscure occupational classification series for jobs that require specific four-year degrees and certifications. And actually, you know, evaluating people in the job hiring process for what their skills actually are. So the White House has said it secured more than $280 million in funding from different organizations to carry out this strategy. And next year, we'll have to see what they're going to do to actually implement it. We understand from several sources that the Office of the National Cyber Director is putting together an implementation plan. So that's something to look out for in the new year. And in the meantime, the skills-based hiring gambit has been going on for a little while now. Have any agencies had progress or success in switching over from, like you say, those obscure job descriptions to actually, yeah, do you know how to stop a log4j attack? Right. Yeah. Well, it's really agency by agency so far. I mean, the Office of Personnel Management has released a lot of guidance on skills-based hiring over the last year or so. There's been different cybersecurity assessments that have popped up at different agencies. DHS, for instance, is using a what it calls a multi-hurdle assessment process to evaluate candidates for IT positions specifically. But there are a lot of other agencies who haven't adopted these practices yet. And that's where OPM and the Office of Management and Budget and the Office of the National Cyber Director want to go is they want, you know, human resources offices across the federal government to be using these skills based assessments. So that's something that agencies and the White House will need to work on in 2024. And what about legislation? What about Congress? This is of interest to some members of Congress, those with technology in their districts, those with lots of federal employees or agencies in their districts, anything they can do to help. Well, the Office of Personnel Management has actually come out and said they are working with Congress on a cyber workforce proposal. And what this would do would take some of the current specialized hiring authorities 
like the Defense Department's Cyber Accepted Service and the Department of Homeland Security's Cyber Talent Management System and stretch a system like those systems across the entire civilian executive branch. For job seekers, that could mean higher cyber pay, more flexible bonuses. For agencies, that could be an accepted service that allows them to more easily do these skills-based assessments. But one big challenge for any piece of legislation in 2024 is that it's a presidential election year. And folks I talked to really raised a lot of questions about whether there will be enough time and consensus on the OPM proposal to get it through a divided Congress in a presidential election year. So that's something that we'll be tracking closely in 2024 when this OPM proposal does come out. So people feel in Congress, if it comes from the other side, it's like the creature from the Black Lagoon. They don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. And to be fair, cyber is one of the few areas where there is still bipartisan consensus. But of course, this brings in personnel policy, too, which then gets a little partisan again. So there will be some tough conversations, to say the least. And on the issue of higher than standard salaries, there are authorities that certain agents have agencies have to be able to hire above the GS, GS schedule, and several of them have used those authorities and gotten appropriations to cover them. You know, it's not giant dollars, but it can be tens of millions, you know, for a cyber staff. And what else can agencies do? Does that catching on? And could that spread in the coming year to more agencies getting special authorities? Well, again, it's complicated. Uh, You know, we've reported on the special salary rate for IT employees, which includes cyber positions that was approved by OPM. And the VA, the Veterans Affairs, has implemented that special salary rate using funding it got through the PACT Act. But recently, uh, our colleague Jason Miller reported that OMB told the agencies there won't be additional funding in their budget plans to implement that special salary rate for their IC employees. OMB reportedly told agencies to focus on specific job series where they're struggling or have a high priority. So the big question next year is, how will agencies find the funding to implement the special salary rate, if at all? And if they do how will they target that funding? Because it seems like it won't apply across the entire IT series. Yeah. So you're back to selling the mission and hoping that that's what people want to do for a couple of years anyway. I guess if they can get people for temporarily, that's better than having nobody. Is there anything else the Biden administration has, anything an agency has in the toolbox after you get to the skills-based hiring, special authorities? What about fast-tracking people even if it's at the same pay, not making them wait four, five, six months till the government makes a higher decision. Yeah, well, one big thing to watch on that front is this idea of a federal cyber workforce development institute. This was included in that cyber workforce and education strategy that we talked about earlier. It would provide training to new new hires in the federal cybersecurity field. So potentially while they wait for their security clearance, they could go do some training at this development institute. It would also potentially provide some mid-career training to folks who get to that point where they're looking to level up beyond kind of being in having that initial knowledge. And then importantly, it would also train HR professionals on the specific hiring techniques and authorities for cyber positions, things that we've talked about like special salary rates and skills-based hiring. Those HR professionals need to know about. So White House officials have recently said they are working with Congress on legislation to establish that institute. So that's something to watch going forward as well. 
And what about people staying trained? If you hire someone for their skills, cybersecurity requirements are always changing. The threats always change. The technologies always change. And you've got this open source on this one hand. You've got homegrown software on the other hand, contracted software. I mean, it's not one thing that people have to do. Do agencies, and should they generally have a plan to, if they hire someone with certain skills, make sure the skills stay current as the needs change? Yeah, I think that's, you know, the idea behind the institute we talked about. But, you know, that also requires agencies to set aside time for their people to you know, pull them off the off the mission, off the desktop and or, or laptop or whatever, and go do that training. And, uh, you know, that that's obviously something that each agency has to approve for their people. So that's been a big issue with the federal cyber workforce is people get a certain amount of experience and then they look to go get more in the private sector in addition to more money in the private sector. So can the federal government beyond just pay provide a reason for people to stick around going forward. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we know you're going to be covering that much more ahead. You can find all of his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the upcoming congressional session is shaping up like the one that just ended. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Happy New Year and a government shutdown deadlines is just a couple of weeks away. Some things never change. Here with a look at what the second session of a troubled Congress is likely to do, we turn to WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And this has not been a happy Congress, it's fair to say. Boy, that is the truth. In fact, last year's Congress was literally one of the most, if not the least productive Congress ever, the 118th Congress. Uh, They only passed 27 bills out of 700 and some that were actually, that became into law out of more than 700 that were actually passed. Uh, There just wasn't a lot done. As you well know, you had that big period where Kevin McCarthy took 15 votes to get elected speaker. And then you had later when he was uh, ousted as speaker, he had almost a whole month where they didn't get everything done. So all of that is backing up and causing us to be in a bad position as we start 2024. I hate to say that as we're just kicking off the new year, but we're just over two weeks away from a partial government shutdown. Very possible. A lot of the lawmakers I've been talking to think that this is almost inevitable because of this January 19th deadline. Uh, The House just didn't get enough done and nor did the Senate at the end of the year. And so now we have potentially a big pileup later this month. And then uh, there is a second, as you know, February 2nd deadline, and that could be the entire government shutdown. And right now, the only off-ramp seems to be a long-term, short-term continuing resolution, which is a unique proposal by uh, the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, who actually wants to do a, or at least floated the idea of a continuing resolution that would go all the way through the end of the fiscal year, Democrats and conservative Republicans have said they don't want that. So normally you would have some kind of off-ramp here where we could get a short-term spending plan and then they could work things out. But they don't even have a top-line number for the overall spending for the government. So everybody really thinks that this is going to be crunch time, even in just the first couple of weeks of the new year. Yeah, with all these factions forming in both parties, it's starting to look 
positively parliamentary here. Right, exactly. And you know what's interesting about the House Freedom Caucus, which of course blocked a lot of the Republican votes last year, literally not allowing them to get to the vote, even though they would be GOP proposals. I'm wondering if they're going to have to rethink some of their strategy, because all through last year, the conservative faction, roughly about two dozen Republicans, blocking these overall House Republican proposals that were backed by then House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, they eventually actually allowed more Democrats to vote on some of these measures because that was the only way that they could get spending passed. And so now we're looking at this situation where everything gets blocked up just by a relatively small group of the 435 members of Congress. Then you complicate that by the fact that the Republican margin has actually decreased because you have George Santos has been kicked out of Congress, Kevin McCarthy Once he was ousted, decided to leave Congress. They only had about a four-vote margin already, so now it can get down to close to two votes. And while there is a special election coming up uh, in the Santos race, there's also another Republican lawmaker who's getting ready to leave for the private sector. So there's really a very, very tight tight tightrope here that Republicans are going to have to manage, and it's going to be really a big, big test for the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson. And just to clarify, McCarthy is not leaving at the end of his term. He's gone now. Right. He's actually gone now. Uh, He decided to leave at the end of 2023, and now there will be a special election to fill his seat, but that's going to take a while. So those seats are going to remain open for, um, in in the McCarthy case, for potentially a few months. So this is really going to tighten things up even more so than it's already been in the House. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller. He's Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Well, they're not back yet, right? So what will be the first thing on the agenda, the spending thing they've just got to deal with one way or another? I think that they're going to have to try to come to some kind of tentative consensus on this top line number for the overall spending, because that's really the key. And I think that's going to be the first thing they're going to have to tackle. And there really hasn't been a lot of indications of a lot of negotiating or things happening behind the scenes during the break. Sometimes that happens, as you know. Uh, The only negotiating has actually been on something totally separate, and that's on that supplemental package, which is a whole nother can of worms, which which is, you know, for Ukraine and for Israel and issues related to the southern border. So it's going to be a need to get to that top line figure. And then what are they actually going to do? What are what is this conservative group of Republicans going to allow? If they're not going to allow a short term spending plan, then what are they going to agree to? They have given uh, the new House speaker some slack, but I just think that's going to really tighten as we move forward. Because they do have in the National Defense Authorization Act, which did get done, the president signed that, I think, the week before you know New Year's Eve, a spending line for the Pentagon, at least. Right. So they do have a debt agreement with the ceiling for the defense spending of $886 billion. That is one bright spot that they did actually get done. They've pretty much all agreed on that point. Another bright spot, potentially, is related to this January 19th deadline. They have what some people say is kind of low-hanging fruit in terms of the bills that they need to get passed by that deadline. I was talking with former House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, the Maryland congressman, and he says there is a potential to get an agreement at least on that first group of bills. But what he worries about is the second larger group of bills, which comes in the February 2nd deadline as part of that so-called laddered continuing resolution. And that's where there could be a potential legislative train wreck. From the contractor's 
Senator's standpoint, they, they're not sure whether they prefer a shutdown or a year-long CR. I think it's been about 25 years since there's been a, a CR that covered the entire fiscal year. Right. I think House Speaker Mike Johnson actually surprised a lot of people with floating that proposal because everyone was just assuming that he was going to go either back to the position that Republicans had, which has, as it turns out, has been relatively unrealistic to try to individually pass all of these 12 appropriations bills, uh, knowing that he's kind of cornered on this group of uh, conservatives who just don't want a short-term spending bill. He thought, well, maybe if I float it through the end of the fiscal year, that will allow them to to go along with it. But they have been, as you well know, uh, very stubborn on a lot of these spending bills. And really, this all goes back to last year when that uh, debt ceiling agreement was made by the former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy with President Biden. Uh, This was all supposed to be set up so that if they didn't reach some agreements, they would have a haircut basically across all the budget, and that would kind of push them into the direction of getting things done. But instead, uh, a lot of conservatives rebelled shortly after that agreement was made. And now here we are with a whole political stew once again heading toward a possible partial government shutdown. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Last year was a busy one for the Office of Personnel Management. The agency manages to push out plenty of proposed regulations aimed to reform federal hiring and meet workforce challenges. But there's more to come. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me for a look ahead to 2024. And Drew, the OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, has had a busy year. I think one reason they're getting so many things done is they've had continuity of leadership. I think Kieran Ahuja has been there, what, going on to three years now. I don't think any OPM director has been there that long in as many years as I can remember. So that's why the Schedule F, which seems to be dead and buried, but does it stick its bony claw up through the grave site to dig its way back out? No, that's that's one that never really seems to go away, Tom, the topic of Schedule F. And just one quick thing before we get to that. Kieran Ahuja is the longest serving OPM director since 2015. So that is very significant. And I think that, as you said, is part of the reason that OPM is able to do a lot of the reforms, proposed regulations, guidance that they have been really churning out over the past year or so. But when it comes to Schedule F, this remains a topic, I think, because even though that executive order was revoked at the beginning of the Biden administration, You still have a lot of federal employees and organizations concerned about its possible return. And on the other hand, you have some people who were in support of Schedule F and the idea behind it, saying that they would likely plan to bring it back in a different administration if that were to happen. We're going into an election year, so I think things are a little bit up in the air there. But in 2023, you had OPM trying to protect federal employees, workforce protections through proposed regulations. And the idea there was to just confirm that these employees do have protections against being fired at will or made at will employees or being moved into a new classification. So they didn't really explicitly say it, but it was definitely related to this idea of Schedule F possibly coming back in the future. And getting rid of people is one thing. Hiring them is another. And OPM has struggled for years. The government has struggled for years on hiring reform. Lots of authorities, lots of temporary ways to get around the standard way of hiring people. So they've made some progress. What are they going to push on ahead, do you think, for hiring reform? 
Well, one thing that I will definitely be watching over the next year is the possible enactment of the Chance to Compete Act. This is a bill that passed in really huge numbers in the House, and there is a Senate version, although it hasn't gotten a lot of action taken on it yet. But that bill really encompasses a lot of the changes that OPM is trying to make. So it talks about skills-based hiring. That means moving away from focusing on job candidates education and focus on their hands-on skills instead. They also talk about the use of subject matter experts in the hiring process, so bringing in people who understand the job on a day-to-day basis and help them pick the candidates or assess the candidates, moving to technical assessments rather than self-assessments to really look at candidates' skills and not just have them rank themselves, and then also sharing certificates. So this idea of having a lot of agencies hiring for certain positions off of one job announcement. Those are all different things that OPM has talked about, has encouraged agencies to do. A lot of these things have also transcended administrations. The Trump administration talked a lot also about skills-based hiring, for example. So I think if we see this bill move forward, that would really push agencies to take on a lot of those reforms more rapidly, more dramatically than what we're seeing right now. Right. It's almost as if they're going to back into civil service reform without actually reforming civil service, but by the time they cut and trim and add and change all the details, it's going to look very different, I think, in a couple of years than it does now. Pay rising 5.2%, depending on your locality. This year, another paycheck round till people see that difference, but that's about it for pay, it looks like, in 2024. For now, that is the one thing that is definitely confirmed. And then you also have the four new locality pay areas where those federal employees working in certain areas across the country are going to be getting higher raises than they would have otherwise. One thing to keep in mind or just to track into 2024 is this continued idea of pay compression. This is something that affects senior level feds in the senior executive service and on the general schedule because there's some legal caps on the way that they're paid. A lot of them I believe at least several thousand of them don't get pay raises or get reduced pay raises each year. The Biden administration has said that they are planning to issue a pay, a proposal to address pay compression and to try to fix it. We haven't yet seen that, but it's something where I think you're getting a lot of uh, advocates and federal pay experts hoping for that to come through sometime in the next year. Well, the only way you can relieve pay compression is either to raise the ceiling or to stop the raises coming up from below. And that's not going to happen. So the only thing they can really do, and it's probably not great politically to request that, but is to raise the ceiling. That'll take congressional approval, I think. Yeah, there is actually a bill on pay compression that Eleanor Holmes Norton introduced uh, just over the last, sometimes during the last year. I don't think it has a lot of bipartisan support at this point, but uh, yeah, that is something that would likely have to go through Congress But the Biden administration may make a legislative proposal in that regard. So, again, it's just going to have to, you know, we'll see how it plays out over the next year. Any other legislation you feel is worth watching besides that one on anything connected with federal employment, federal hiring, federal pay? There's there would be a lot to cover, Tom. I think that one that a lot of people will be paying attention to is the Social Security Fairness Act. This is one that would repeal two provisions of Social Security that reduce or eliminate uh, those benefits for certain federal retirees. This bill has been around for a very long time trying to repeal these provisions, the windfall elim- elimination provision and the government pension offset. 
Uh, it's gained a lot of support over the last year. It currently has 300 co-sponsors in the House, 49 in the Senate, and that's much farther along than it was last Congress already. So I think you're seeing a lot of traction building for this bill, and you're seeing a lot of organizations. The um, NARF, for example, is a really strong advocate of uh, passing this legislation. And I think you're going to see a, a much bigger push on this over the next year as well. Well, you know, the cost of it is supposed to be something like $148 billion demand over time on the Social Security Trust Fund, which is not doing real well. So there is some opposition to it. And there's also, I think, people are thinking, well, there was a reason those were there because the people earned income that, are, that they're getting a pension on that was not subject to the Social Security tax. And so the offset was because they're getting retirement benefits on that income. So I think probably still some debate there. The other issue is that if you're talking about SERS system retirees, that's a dwindling number. There's only a couple of hundred thousand of them left versus several million FERS people that get Social Security. So the longer they wait, <laughs> the less urgent the whole thing becomes. There'll be nobody left to pay it to. Right. Yeah, this is one that just affects SERS retirees, the older retirement system. And you're right that there, you know, there isn't complete um, support for this bill. There is some uh, opposition to it. And you had Congress back in the 80s who was saying, OK, let's find a way to balance the scales a little bit. That's why you have these provisions in the first place. Um, but, you know, I think it, it just depends on which way you cut it to see whether you're for or against that issue. I think if you're a SERS retiree, of course, you're going to want that. And I don't know what's going to happen this year, but I think you're still going to see a, a pretty big push for that. Well, the year is young. There's lots of coverage ahead. We'll look forward to working with you as we keep all of these things in front of our readers. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out all of her stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 